Our scripture focus is on Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? How shall sorrow in my heart continue all day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest the foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because the Lord is bountiful with me. The word of the Lord. Seated. <clears throat> I want to thank Jeremy for inviting me to uh, share with you today. Uh, we pray for him to have a very quick recovery. We met about a year ago uh, through a mutual friend, Seth Leaf, who is serving in Branson, Missouri, and they had actually uh, been in school together, and so he knew Seth, I know Seth, and so we enjoyed a cup of coffee and getting to know one another um, a great deal better, and then uh, from that we've met a, a time or two uh, since then as well. Uh, I, uh, for 40 years, was the pastor of uh, the Springs Church, actually 25 years, the pastor of the Springs Church on the south side of the city, retired about three years ago and became part-time uh, regional church health coach, uh, which involves working with about 30 churches and pastors and in the area of discipleship, leadership development, and missional outreach. Unfortunately, under COVID, it's ended up being a lot of pastoral care for our pastors and uh, helping them through just a lot of difficult decisions they've had to make over the last, last year. Uh, I found myself several times uh, not only preaching, but filling in for guys that are away or on vacation, which I often enjoy, and uh, that's also ended up being a part of my role. I often say whenever I'm sharing, I do not view myself as the chef preparing a meal back in the kitchen for you, uh, but rather as a waiter, just simply trying to get the meal from the kitchen to the table without messing it up. Uh, and that is why I always invite you to open your Bibles, and we just simply go verse by verse. And as best I can, I seek to explain what God has already said uh, in His Word. Uh, in this season of my life, I have found myself asking the question, what does it look like for me to walk by faith? Uh, and God has given me parts of that answer uh, to kind of fill in the blanks. But yet I also believe that answer is fluid and it's always flexible and God is always teaching us daily how to, how to walk by faith. But I found myself reading again Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter on faith. And you may remember it opens with Abraham and God calling Abraham to leave his family and his city and all that was familiar to him uh, to follow God. And Abraham embraced God and followed him some 500 miles to a land that God would show him. 
But when he arrived in that land, he never possessed that land. In fact, he lived a lifetime without possessing that land. And when his wife Sarah died, he ended up purchasing a small plot of land from the Hittites in order to have a burial pot uh, for her. And I've always asked the question, I wonder which was harder, to leave where you were familiar, your family, your friends, and follow God initially, or your whole lifetime to live in a land and never see those promises fulfilled. And I suspect that perhaps the second was harder, as he constantly asked God, how long before we have a child? How long before we're able to possess the land? He soon discovered that many of God's promises uh, were not yet, not yet, not in this lifetime. And it's often that way. We come to Christ and we enjoy eternal life. We come to Christ and we enjoy forgiveness. Uh, We come to Christ and we receive his spirit to change us from the inside out. And yet we also, also discover that there are many promises that are not yet, not yet, Am I free from the power of sin and its presence? Not yet is the church without spot or wrinkle. Not yet are the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of Christ. Not yet am I free from loss or disease or even death. And so we also ask the question, how long? How long, God, before uh, these promises become my reality? And we ask this question in many different forms. Uh, your vocation on Monday morning. You say, God, how long will I continue to ask you to give me a job, a career that just does two things, matches my abilities and interests and skills, and also gives me a basic income? How how long will I continue to ask you for this? Or uh, you have a young ninth grade girl who's living with a great deal of disruption. And uh, she's not the cause of the disruption, uh, but she says, Lord, how long will I continue to ask you while other families enjoy your blessing and your goodness while mine experiences fighting and arguments and, and continual conflict? How long? Or maybe on your street, uh, we've all heard of free-range chickens. You have free-range children. There is a family, but they're not very interested in parenting, at least at not this stage of their life. And their children just kind of roam from house to house. And mom's pregnant with child number six, and the bumper stickers on their car seems to indicate they have little interest in faith in God or little interest in even following God. And yet you, for four years, have been active in your church and been praying and a part of a Bible study, and you've been asking God just for one child, just one child. God, how long, how long will I continue to ask for your favor? This question has been asked for thousands of years, and it was spoken by King David a thousand years before the time of Christ in Psalm chapter 13. The book of Psalms is the Hebrew people's ancient hymn book. It was God's word put to music to make it easy to memorize and easy to understand. In fact, the very first book, one of the very first books, printed in America by our Pilgrim Fathers in 1640 was printed uh, 
by our pilgrim fathers uh, as a hymn book to put the book of Psalms to memory, to help, help, help their muscle memory by way of their prayers. That book recently became the highest selling book in history as it sold for $14 million. But it's a common process and a common practice among God's people to sing the Psalms, recite the Psalms, uh, pray, pray the Psalms. And, and what we see in, in this Psalm is it's addressed to God. In fact, Jesus himself, we are told he sang a hymn and then he went out to the Mount of Olives. The word used there is a psalm. Uh, we're told to greet one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. Uh, the threefold way that the book of Psalms was often viewed in the Old Testament. The book of Psalms are songs to build muscle memory and to commit them to memory. And Psalm 13 begins with the words, how long? And it's not just addressed to anyone, it's addressed to God. How long, O oh God, will you forget me forever? This is a person that is worn out from waiting, worn out from asking. And he's asking, how long will I continue to ask you to, to answer my, my prayers? We typically call this type of song, uh, psalm a lament psalm. And we are told that there are 150 psalms, and approximately one-third of them are laments, 58 lament psalms. And lament psalms basically say, hey, I live in a world, and it is not well, and God, it's okay not to be okay, but let me tell you what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, and what I'm praying. And lament psalms always move toward God. They never move away from God. And they teach us that it's okay to share our deepest and darkest emotions with, with God. Psalm 13 uh, is begins with these words four times in the first two verses, how long, how long. And I've selected Psalm 13 because it's a typical lament psalm and it follows a typical lament psalm pattern. First of all, there is uh, emotional honesty where we tell God how we feel. In verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide from me, your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David has been a fugitive on the run from King Saul for eight, nine years. And if King Saul could capture him, he would gladly put David to death. Saul's son, Jonathan, was David's very best friend, and Saul had a daughter that captured David's heart, and David would later marry. Can you imagine the family complexity of that situation? And David now begins to share his inner struggle, and it goes three directions. First of all, towards God. He says, uh, God... Um, First of all, I feel forgotten. How long? How long will you forget me forever? God, it's like you are silent. I am praying, and when I pray, it is like you do not care. But then secondly, he says to God, I also feel forsaken. Uh, how long will you hide your face from me? 
This is much more intentional than just to be forgotten. I suppose you, you can love someone and accidentally forget them. I remember on Sunday mornings, I would go to church early. Donna would come later. She would bring the children. And when church was over, I would always conclude that the children were all in the car with her. And she would conclude some were in the car with me. And we would get home and discover that one of the children was back at church. Uh, we had forgotten, and it was a pure accident that had occurred. But to forsake someone is much more intentional. It's much more of a turning your back and, and walking away. And he says, God, I feel like you have abandoned me. In Numbers chapter 6, the, the priests were taught to pray a prayer over the people. And, and the words that they were taught to pray is, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. And may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. And the Lord is described there as looking in your direction. And now the psalmist is describing God as looking in the opposite direction. God, your favor is not looking upon me. I don't sense your blessing. I don't accept your, I don't uh, feel a sense of your presence with me. I feel that you have actually turned uh, from, from me. James Montgomery Boyce talks about this feeling of abandonment. And he says, we don't talk about this a lot as Christians because we tend to believe that the Christian life is one happy, clappy, always victorious journey of faith. Uh, but he said, you know, the Spirit of God has placed this in Scripture, and it says, I feel abandoned. That's literally what David is, is saying. God, I do not understand your ways. I don't understand why you are not, you're not answering. Dark valleys are just as much a journey of faith as a mountaintop experience. And the psalmist is teaching us it's okay to be honest and open with God with our emotions. So the first direction he takes his emotions is toward God, and we would expect that because God is at the core. But then secondly, he talks about the struggle within himself uh, in verse 2. How long will I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow uh, in my heart all my days? Many years ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book entitled Spiritual depression, very catchy, I suppose, little phrase. Uh, didn't sell too many copies, but in that book, he commented on this very verse. And he said that we spend far too much time listening to ourselves and not nearly enough time talking to ourselves. Now, you know how that goes. We've all done this. I mean, it's four o'clock in the morning and you begin to think about a decision you made or you didn't make and the fallout from that decision, and how it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. And then from five to six, you spend all your time thinking about how much worse it's possibly going to get. And Boyce said, instead of listening to ourselves, we need to start preaching to ourselves. God, you are my deliverer. You are my helper. You are my salvation. You are the one that I will turn to and the one that I will trust. So David begins here by first saying, God, this is the way I feel toward you. This is what's going on inside of me. And then thirdly, he talks about his enemies. Uh, he says at the end of verse 2, How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? 
Uh, his enemies notice they're over him. He's not over them. They're over me. My problems, they're triumphing. And I feel like I'm losing and I'm being defeated in this, in this battle. Now, some of you may be thinking, you know, this psalm really feels a bit raw and almost a bit disrespectful. And my response would be, this psalm is really very tame as far as lament psalms go. But this is also, I think, a part of an honest, open conversation when there is a relationship. It's just a part of a process. It's a part of conversations that my wife has with me and men, I dare say, probably conversations that your wife has with you. I come home and she says, Jerry, I need you to pick up your shoes. I almost tripped over them last night. I just need you to put them away. And I say, honey, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll take care of that. Or Jerry, I don't, please don't go into the study and immediately turn on your computer and start to do more work. Or, or don't get on your phone and continuing making phone calls. I would just like to have some of your time to talk to you more about our day. Now, now, why does she share these needs with me and what she's feeling? Well, first of all, she trusts how I will respond, but she deeply cares that we have a healthy relationship and a healthy marriage, and I have a great relationship with my kids and also with my, grand, my grandkids. And, and God, he is the creator of heaven and earth. How small Do you think God has to be if he cannot handle you sharing your honest and open emotions with him? Your darkest thoughts, your your darkest feelings, where you begin to say, God, this is what I'm feeling. And I'm not well with this situation, and I'm not okay with this being okay. Uh, These are the feelings that I'm, I'm going through. So Psalm 13 is teaching us first to be honest with God in what we're feeling. Secondly, it teaches us to be honest with God in what we want in our prayers. Uh, Verse 3, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him. Lest my foe rejoices because I am shaken. Three times he said, least. Least I sleep the sleep of death, least the enemies prevail, least uh, my foes rejoice. This, this is a desperate prayer. This is a man that says, oh God, I need your help, and if you do not show up, I am not going to survive. Someone has said, when it comes to prayer, we don't need more self-discipline, we need more desperation. That may very well be the answer to effective prayer. Johnny Erickson Tata recently took a trip to Ghana, one of the poorest countries in the world, and visited one of the poorest villages in Ghana. Uh, Along with her few American guests, they were also able to visit a church on Sunday morning. And she said the joy that was a part of that church was just overwhelming. And then at an appropriate time, a woman stood up and she said, welcome American friends to Ghana where we have great joy because we need Jesus more. Where we have great joy because we need Jesus more. And I thought to myself, maybe that's the reason that I suspect we are not very good at asking. 
We don't understand the depths of which we need Jesus. I must admit to you that I have a capacity to be discouraged by situations, but to be exhausted by a situation, to be distracted by a situation, and not ask for God's help in a situation. I often try to disciple someone who is a new believer or someone who's not yet a believer, and so I've often started that journey in the book of Mark. And Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, and Mark is a cousin to Peter, so we're probably receiving Peter's account of Jesus' life. But that book opens with a leper falling before Jesus and saying, Oh Lord, please heal me. There's a guy who knew how to ask. He's cut off from the Jewish community, and he comes to Jesus asking for Jesus uh, to help him. Then the next chapter, you have Jairus and his 12-year-old daughter, only daughter, is sick, and she's about to die, and he falls at Jesus' ankles, and he says, Oh Lord, heal her, heal her. And then you have a Phoenician woman, not even a part of the Jewish faith, outside the faith, and her daughter is possessed by a demon. Can you imagine the nightmares she lived with every single day? And she comes to Jesus and she says, please heal her. These were three people of of many that knew how to ask. And I wonder, do we? We can worry about a situation. We can be anxious about a situation. We can be exhausted by a situation and not ask for God's help in a situation. I believe God still loves to hear the desperate prayers of his children that come to him and say, oh God, help, or else there is no answer in in my situation. In, In Luke chapter 11, Jesus told about a father. He said, what father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for eggs, will give him a scorpion? Or if he asks for bread, will give him a stone? Now, those of you who are parents, can we just be honest? Our kids can ask for some pretty big things. In fact, I wish my kids would have only asked for bread, eggs, or fish. Uh, But here it is, late in the morning, and you're sound asleep, and there's a tiny crack in the door. And dads, let's just suppose you're on the side of the bed near the door, and you hear those little feet, you know, coming across the floor and uh, comes right up to your side of the bed and says, Dad, I'm thirsty. I need a drink of water. Now, who else could get by with that? Your wife couldn't get by with that. If your wife said that to you, you would say, what's wrong? Are you, are you sick? Is there a reason you can't get yourself a drink of water? Uh, but this is your son, your precious little son. This is your daughter, your adorable little daughter. So men, what do you do? You do what most men do. You say, honey, your mommy is on the other side of the bed. Now, hopefully you don't do that. Hopefully you man up and you get up and you get them a drink of water and you help them find their way back to bed. But then, but then they become young adults and then they become older teenagers and And they say, Dad, you know, my tuition is due at college. Or, Dad, I was thinking about buying a car, which is their way of saying, can you help me? And you may give them a one-time gift, or you may work out a process where they become a part of that answer themselves. But you delight to give them 
good gifts because it delights their heart and it also has a way of delighting your heart. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, it says, He, God the Father, He did not spare His Son, but He gave Him up for all of us. And how that we also may be, He may graciously go on to give us all things. In other words, He gave us His Son who lived the life we couldn't live, died a death that we deserve to die, then gave us the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. If he has given us these wonderful gifts, do you really believe he will withhold other gifts when we, when we ask? When our children were small, we took a vacation to Disney World, and uh, it was a long day, and we were running about an hour behind the normal time uh, that, you know, we, we normally would eat dinner. And the kids kind of began to whine, and they said, Dad, are we not going to eat? And I thought to myself, do you think I brought you to Disney World to starve you? Do you not know how much it's costing me for one day in this park? Do you think that I enjoy standing in a 90-minute line to ride Dumbo for five minutes is all about me? Surely if I loved you enough to bring you to Disney World, I love you enough to get you something to eat. And our God, our Father is saying, if I loved you enough to give you my son, my only son, what other gifts do you think I will withhold from you when you ask? And he's encouraging us to boldly Come into his presence and tell him what we want and have a confidence that he delights to answer those requests. Now look at the nature of what he asked for in verse, uh, verse uh, 3. He says, God, light up my eyes. And I would read that and I initially thought, well, he's asking for wisdom. He's asking for understanding. And yet the nature of this psalm is a question, how long, how long? He's not asking, God, help me understand my suffering. But I think he's asking, God, help me endure. Help me have a strength to continue. Put a light in my eyes and a new hope in my eyes that I can endure the situation uh, that, that I am facing. So these Psalms are teaching us it's okay not to be okay. And tell God what you're feeling. It's okay not to be okay, especially in our crazy world today, and tell God what you want. And then thirdly, it's okay not to be okay and continue to trust Him. A tenacious trust is always a part of the Lament Psalms and a part of Psalm 13. He says in verse 5, But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has, been, he has been bountiful with me. God, uh, David expresses a confidence anchored in the character of God. Now, just a couple things. First of all, this psalm is a condensed version. David did not, in a matter of seconds, go from how long and I'm depressed I, I'm exhausted and I'm disillusioned to verse 6. I will sing your praises. This took days, weeks, and even months to come to this place. 
So what we are reading in Psalm 13 is a condensed version of what took place in his life. But then secondly, I would say, uh, to help, help us not yet arrive for this guy, there is no indication that his situation has changed yet. He is clinging to the character of his God, knowing he is faithful, but his situation still remains, remains the same. He said, I will trust in your steadfast, or I have trusted in your steadfast love. And it's a Hebrew word, hesed. Bruce Walkie, one of uh, the most brilliant Hebrew scholars, has said this is the second most important word in the Hebrew language. Behind the word Yahweh, the name for God. And it is this word, hesed. Translated loyal love, mercy, steadfastness, faithfulness. In the ancient world, people did not have video games to exercise their thumbs. <laughs> so they would observe the animal kingdom and their behavior. And in watching the animal kingdom, they came up with all kinds of statements like sly as a fox or wise as an owl or dumb as a goose. Uh, but the, the one animal that they observed, the loyalty, the steadfastness, was the stork. The stork was a picture of loyal love to their young. They would uh, uh, build their nest in the highest pinnacle of a tree or a cliff. This week I actually saw a 40-foot pillar in ancient Ephesus, where a stork had built its nest at the top of that pillar and was raising their young. And they would raise their young in that nest, and they would never leave that nest. The male stork would bring food in a storm or in a fire. They would die rather than abandon, abandon their young. They are a picture, hesedah is the word, of loyal love. Now, contrast to that, the Hebrews would contrast it to the ostrich, the all-time worst mother. Ostrich would lay their eggs, and then they would carelessly, with their big feet, just step on the eggs and break them. Or they would walk away, never to return, leaving it to the male bird to raise the babies when they're actually hatched. And I would say to you, how do you think that's going to turn out? The man raising the babies. In fact, perhaps the only reason we even know there's such a thing as an ostrich today is because they live between 25 to 40 years, those few uh, that are able to survive. But the Hebrews, when they thought of a loyal mother, faithfulness, they thought of the stork. And isn't it interesting that in American folklore, lore, we still talk about the stork as the one that delivers the baby when the baby arrives in our house. It is a hesedah, the steadfast love of God. And the psalmist is now returning to God's faithfulness, God's steadfast love to him over the years. <clears throat> Every once in a while, I am asked the question, okay, Jerry, you're a pastor, so who are the other pastors and teachers that you listen to? And I have different people on my list from time to time, but there's one person that seems to always make my list, uh, and it is Tim Keller. Some of you may know Tim Keller. Some of you may not be familiar with him. He's written numerous books. 
He has a very large and influential church in New York City, uh, Redeemer's Presbyterian. Uh, I listen to him because I think he's brilliant, and I really do believe he is brilliant, uh, but also because I believe he is a gentle, kind, compassionate man. There's a tone in his voice that just deeply cares for people. Uh, but Tim Keller, in the last year, has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he did a webinar where he was just sharing where he was in that journey. And he made a distinction between an eternal hope and a relevant hope. And I want to just read to you his words uh, that he shared in that talk. He said, I would say I have a relative hope in my doctors. I have some of the best doctors in the world, which is a wonderful gift since we live in New York City. We feel like we are getting the very best treatment. We feel like we have the very best medical consultants. And there has been some early hopeful signs from my treatment, uh, and so we have a relative hope. Relative means things may, may go well or things may not go well. But as a Christian, we also have an infallible hope. In the Bible, the word for hope actually means confidence. When it says we have a hope in the resurrection, it means we have an absolute hope in it. We have a confidence in the goodness and the goodwill of God. God's will is good and perfect, and he knows how long I should live. So I have an infallible hope in his goodwill, and I have an infallible hope in his resurrection. We have a great relative hope in the medical treatment that I am now receiving, and hopefully it will turn out well. But in any case, I have this absolute infallible hope, the absolute certainty that God's will is good and perfect and unshakable and absolutely, absolutely confident that he is good. Well, today we have an advantage David didn't have. David lived a thousand years before the cross. We live a thousand years after the cross. We look back to the cross and we see Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, another lament psalm. And we know that Jesus was forsaken by God the Father, so you would never have to be forsaken. All of God's wrath, the full cup of God's wrath, was poured out upon Jesus Christ for the sins of all mankind so that there was not a single drop of his punitive anger left in that cup for you. God could have decreed that you are a sinner, uh, that he would deputize someone as a hitman just to finish you off. But instead, he deputized the second member of the triune Godhead to be your substitute and helper and provider and to give to you life. But the cross not only reveals the gravity of our debt, it also reveals the greater gravity of God's infinite love for you and the depths to which he would go to make you a member of his family. How do we know the value of a piece of art? We know the value of a piece of art by the, what the highest bidder is willing to give for it. 
And on the cross, the lifeblood of Jesus Christ was liquidated to make you a member of his family and to redeem you for all eternity. You who have ignored him, you who have shunned him, you who contributed to the driving of the nails in his hands and his feet, you who have offended him, and yet the moment you crossed over that line in faith and put your belief in him, you became his beloved son or daughter, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, you became his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. You became his creation that's a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. You became the love of his heart that he was willing to die for in order to redeem, Hebrews 12.2. He came not only to forgive a billion-dollar debt that you could never repay, he also came to love you with a love that is beyond your imagination or your wildest dreams. This is our infallible hope that we have in Jesus Christ in the darkest of times. And this is why Scripture encourages us when things are not well, and it's not okay to be okay. Come to him with your feelings. Come to him with what you want and come to him as you continue to trust in the resurrection and the cross. The good news of the gospel is God does not love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree you are in Christ. And the moment you place your trust in Jesus Christ, we are told you are 100% in him. Our prophet, priest, and king, we thank you for your word written for us to study and explain, but we pray that your written word may be a word written upon our hearts. Lord God, encourage us. Transform us through your word. Make us your people that are running in your presence with our feelings, turning to you with what we want, and continuing to trust you even in the darkest and the most difficult of times because of the cross and the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.